You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. Glad to be back in the studio. Yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we have a lot to talk about this week. We do. We should start with the um, incident that happened on the Alex Fraser Bridge earlier this week. Yeah. So uh, Kyla was driving back from court and she phoned me and said, I may not make it back to the office in time because I'm stuck in traffic here. I don't know what's going on. It looks like an accident. And it wasn't an accident. It was uh, one of these incidents that happens on a bridge in the lower mainland. Someone's out there contemplating their circumstances in life and, and uh, dealing with a problem, mental yeah. problem, essentially. Uh, and it's the type of thing that we you know, should all be sympathetic for. Uh, and um, things did not go as they normally do. So the bridge was shut down, at least on one side, for several hours. I think the shutdown started around 2.30 in the afternoon, and it went until around 8 at night. Um, ultimately, they did shut down the whole bridge. But because the Delta police had blocked off traffic to people heading into Surrey and Delta um, over the Alex Fraser Bridge, there were a lot of drivers who were stuck in the gridlock and, understandably, quite upset but the way that people acted um, as a result of it raises concerns about um, sort of the police handling of this situation as well as concerns about traffic diversion. And finally, also some discussion that we can have about what provisions of the Motor Vehicle Act could have been used to better handle this situation. So people were videoing it and posting it on TikTok. Yep. And some media outlets... Uh, one in particular was identified by Jazz Joe Hall as uh, he called them out um, for uh, publishing what was going on on the bridge. Exactly. And there's a, an, a, an agreement, an understanding mm-hmm. between media outlets that they don't publish this stuff. And there's lots of reasons, and we don't have to go into all the reasons, but trust us, it makes sense. You don't need to know everything. Yeah, there's a police incident on the bridge. That's all you need to know. That's what's, you know, what the police incident is doesn't really matter or change the fact that the bridge is shut down. So don't don't go that route. That's all you need to know. Yeah. So you followed up on some of the behavior of people. We probably need to talk about that before we can talk about the policing aspect. There were three separate sort of categories of behavior that I'm going to call them. One was people who were parked in on the bridge and who got out of their cars or off the buses and walked over to the incident and um, attempted to engage with it. One wonders what people are thinking and why they would assume that they are more capable than the people or that they have some right or obligation to do that. Um, You think about uh, um, paramedics working on somebody who's been in an injury and you don't get out of your car and start, you know, yelling at the paramedic or the person who's been injured. Mm-hmm. And the um, people that sort of went and did that and, and and interrupted the police doing their jobs, or even just the people who were shouting 
at the individual who was who was struggling, um, encouraging him to do certain things, they could all face criminal charges for that conduct. Well, and I wonder how much of it's on video that they can that they can do that for. Um, you know, what evidence they collected, if anything. Well, um, I think a lot of it was on TikTok. I did see some photos on media outlets um, that were reporting on the behavior of drivers stuck in traffic. Um, you could certainly be charged with obstruction and arrested for obstruction because obstruction doesn't just require you to be interfering with a criminal investigation. Obstruction is any interference with the police in their lawful execution of their duties, and that includes duties related to public safety. I think that's probably the most likely charge that you would see from it. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be nice to see if some people are investigated for it. Um, I, you know, it may meet the charge approval standard for that if the evidence is there. Um, but uh, you know, for the purpose of general deterrence, <laughs> you know, th this is one of those types of things where you're sitting there thinking to yourself, "How the fuck did anybody persuade themselves that this was appropriate behavior?" Um, and, uh, it certainly is something that we, I mean, it, 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 the exact issue, right? Police officers in the lawful execution of their duty. It's the exact reason we have that offense. There's also the offense very rarely used, but the offense in the criminal code of counseling suicide. Yeah. Um, I didn't think about that one, but yeah, sure enough, it is an offense, uh, I remember reading it when I sat down and read the entire criminal code back when I was in law school. Um, and uh, yeah, it is, uh, it is one that might be applicable in this circumstance. There's probably some good defenses to it, um, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be, shouldn't be something that's investigated. The other um, thing that I thought about was that case that went in the United States um, in which an individual was charged with manslaughter. Um, she was dating a, a teenage boy and the teenage boy became suicidal and she encouraged him and, and sort of gave him instructions as to how to, you know, connect the exhaust from his car so that he could, he could kill himself that way. Yeah. I mean, again, it's an, an infrequent charge. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it did result in a manslaughter conviction in the United States. So, you know, had the incident not resulted in the police, um, the police actually getting control of the situation and stopping what was about to happen, maybe certain people who were shouting things from their vehicles could be charged with manslaughter offenses. So there were quite a few charges that I think could have been applicable that the police could have used in this situation, or at least arrests that they could have made to sort of diffuse that type of tension and to discourage other people well you have to think of the resources that they've got there at the roadside they're trying to accomplish a bunch of things um and arrest may not be the necessary and appropriate thing and the other thing is when you're a police officer uh, i mean you, you can charge them later on right you know that's the thing you can always come back and do it um but as a police officer you're sitting there thinking to yourself what's the offense what can i arrest this person for i mean obviously obstruction of a peace officer is the is the number one there, but you know, you're not necessarily just jumping to the conclusion that this person has necessarily committed an offense. And especially when we have all of these um, deeply embedded uh, ideas and legal rights to speak and protest, 
Um, you're sitting there thinking to yourself as a police officer, okay, I've got to make a bunch of judgment calls right now. Um, where does this expression fall? Now, the second category of people were, were, I think there was maybe only one or two people who did this, but drivers who drove around the road closure and into the lanes of the bridge that were shut down, disregarding police direction. And I think there it is, uh, you could fairly easily justify a, um, a dangerous operation of a motor vehicle. Uh, it's circumstances where the road is blocked down, blocked off. Uh, it is uh, it is behavior that is so far departs from the norm and puts people at risk. The reason the road is blocked off is because uh, people are working on the road, people are out on the road. So, uh, you know, in that case, I think dangerous operation of a motor vehicle would uh, be a, the charge to go for. Of course, there's also motor vehicle act offenses. Yeah, the ones that I was thinking of were failing to obey police direction, um, uh, like disobeying a traffic control person, um, which can include a police officer in some circumstances. Um, those are offenses that are much easier to prove because you can ticket for them. Um, you don't have to get into whether there's a marked departure and the mens rea question. Um, they didn't obey the police direction. They went around the road closure. They violated the motor vehicle act, even disobey traffic control device. Well, my issue is the departure is so abnormal in these circumstances, which is why I would like to see criminal investigations for it. Um, might end up resolved with a motor vehicle act conviction, but um, you know this is putting those. Uh, it's a, the marked departure that is dangerous, right? Now, the final category of people that I thought we should spend a little time talking about were the one person who was uh, also drove around the police um, uh, road closures and barriers, but was found to be impaired. Well, uh, you know, stop a thousand cars <laughs> um, and chances are pretty good that one of those people is going to be impaired in their ability to operate a motor vehicle. One of those people is going to be high on drugs or drunk, most likely. I mean, it made me think the the idea that I got from it was, you know, if if at 2.30 in the afternoon to like 8 o'clock at night, not your, you know, usual 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. or 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. impaired driving hot times, if the police are interacting with a very small number of drivers who are violating the rules and finding at least one impaired person, chances are if they had got some more members out walking up and down the lines of cars and reading mandatory demands, they would have taken quite a few people off the road. Yeah, if they had those resources, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, you know, you and I have watched uh, police investigations on video, and you can see a police officer often will be able to conduct multiple investigations relatively quickly, um, making mandatory demands. And so one would uh, think that this would be a circumstance where it wouldn't be a bad thing. You got a captive audience. They're not about to drive away. <laughs> They're there. But you have to have the resources for it, right? And we are seeing this ongoing issue in policing in BC. Uh, you know, the, uh, the conservatives are attacking the uh, federal government, saying that the uh, problems that we have in crime are as a result of uh, failures of the federal government. Well, the reality is we, we are in a labor shortage, and the labor shortage extends very deeply into the police right now. I also thought about that. Um, I was on the Mike Smith show on Monday this week, 
talking about um, a roadblock that was set up by transit police in partnership with the RCMP at the SkyTrain station in Richmond. And they found on like a random night, nine impaired drivers at this roadblock, plus 21 people who were driving without insurance and like another 15 or so who were driving without valid licenses. Well, it's the really unexpected roadblock, I suppose. You know, the uh, in, in many parts of the U.S., they announce when they're having roadblocks. And um, they do that. Uh, it's been ruled in some states that they're required to notify people because people are entitled to not go through the roadblock. Um, I think that probably has a deterrent effect. People aren't sitting there monitoring where the roadblocks are. But knowing that there's yeah, there's going to be roadblocks out tonight on this street, this street, this street, people see that in the news and they think of them. And there'll be roving patrols, right? Yeah. And people think to themselves they're not going to take the risk. But well, how a often? lot of people have come to the conclusion that certain roads are pretty safe for them if they are mm -hmm. the people who set out to drink and drive. Yeah. And how often in the lower mainland do mm. you see a sobriety roadblock that is not during the Christmas and summer counterattack seasons? Very rare. I don't it's think I so, ever have. So if you're one of those people who thinks you can get away with it, you can persuade yourself. You know, <laughs> I've driven home a thousand times and never seen a roadblock. Mm -hmm. I'm, personally, that's the case for me. You know, I'm not, I'm not prone to drinking and driving and I don't want to run over anybody. But um, if you're one of those people who has that, uh, you know, alcoholism is a disease and you are an alcoholic and who drinks and drives and plots it, um, you can essentially rely on the predictability and the unpredictability is what we see here, right? They got that person because, I of, mean, of they, they, they identified themselves <laughs> by being stupid, but it was in an unpredictable, <laughs> unpredictable, <your> there. <laughs> uh, inadvertent roadblock, right? Yep. Anyway, so that's what I thought we could talk about related to the bridge, but you have something even more exciting to talk about today. Well, I don't know if it's more exciting. We um, monitor whenever the provincial government releases a new manual for the AlcoSensor FST um, uh, approved screening device, the one that we use in BC. So there's specific BC programming and there's a um, specific BC uh, manual that we use. And there's a lot of history there. We wrote a blog post about it. When the IRP scheme was introduced, uh, they didn't have a manual published anywhere, and we had multiple manuals for the device from the manufacturer, plus the RCMP manual for training officers. And we used to use that regularly in IRP cases to show that, look, the description that the police officer is providing of the device is not consistent with the way that it's supposed to operate. Uh, and the method that they're using wasn't consistent. And so then they came along and created something called the Superintendent's Report on Approved Screening Devices, at which point Kyla comes into the story. <laughs> yes, uh, the Superintendent's Report on Approved Screening Devices was a document that they relied on to answer all of these sort of unanswered questions in the evidence about ASDs. Uh, but I challenged it in court because... There's not actually, there wasn't any statutory authority for them to just create their own evidence and then send it to everybody and say, by the way, we're relying on this. The legislation only allowed evidence to be provided from the police or from or on behalf of the applicant. So one of the problems that we identified when we were challenging the second version of the IRP scheme was, where's the evidence coming from? And how can you say that the evidence is not tainted in some manner or another? 
And there was a lot of things that we identified for the BC Supreme Court judge. And the discussion that we had, I mean, you know, these are chats that you have in court, right? When you're making your submission, the judge starts asking you questions. And the judge came back to, and ultimately this was in the decision, um, kept coming back saying, look, can't, aren't these things that can be addressed in the course of uh, later litigation to fix these many problems that you're identifying with the IRP scheme? Well, what happens in the later litigation? Well, this decision that Kyla got was sort of an example of what happens. Uh, we litigate. There's an aspect of the IRP scheme that's fundamentally unfair, and then the government just came back and changed the legislation. Yay. So after that, the government also wrote that they could create their own evidence and publish their own evidence on the website, and if they wanted, they could do their own investigations and all sorts of other things that are really... Um, uh, you know, thankfully, they haven't relied on some of that, uh, but uh, it's uh, disconcerting that they would give themselves that power, um, and it just discourages us from challenging any aspect of the legislation that's unfair because we know the government's just going to change it. So, one of the things they began to publish was manuals for the approved screening devices, their own approved manuals online. And we know a lot about these manuals because we got some information through freedom of information requests, uh, discussions about it, where they said, well, we don't want to change the manual too much because Kyla will embarrass us in front of the court, basically, um, because it shouldn't really change because the, how has the science changed and, you know, we're the previous people with the old manual innocent now that the new manual comes out. <laughs> but, uh, of course, they do still publish new manuals from time to time and they had to do a new one and 2018 when the law changed federally and they did another one in 2020 and now we're on to the fifth one which was published at the beginning of this month and we've got to look at it right at the beginning um, and I guess it's probably glaring more for its omissions than for the changes. Yeah they basically have amended the manual to remove pieces of the manual that don't allow the prohibitions to be upheld in certain circumstances and to respond to specifically the Gordon decision from the BC Court of Appeal. Yeah, and arguments that we were making. So when you're pulled over uh, and under investigation, the police officer has to make a demand immediately. And it's got to be either immediately on the basis of a reasonable suspicion of alcohol in the body upon the police officer forming that suspicion, or in the case of a mandatory demand, uh, an immediate demand. Basically, you pull the person over, all you can really do before that is identify them, and then you've got to make the demand. Um, and the um, immediacy requirement is for the demand and taking the sample. The criminal code isn't written that way, however. The criminal code just uh, refers to um, uh, um, a demand to immediately provide a sample of breath um, suitable for analysis using an approved screening device. But the way that it's been judicially interpreted, because you can't make a demand for an immediate compliance when the demand itself is not immediate, and because of the suspension on your Section 10A and 10B rights, the fact that the demand itself tells you why you're being detained, the law has been interpreted consistently since the 1980s by the Supreme Court of Canada as requiring the demand to be made immediately in addition to the test being administered immediately. So the whole idea there is that um, the demand must be made immediately, but the criminal code doesn't say the demand must be made immediately. The criminal code says the test must be made immediately. The court has said this is all immediately because you are trying to minimize the charter violations, 10B, um, Section 8, um, 
10A because you're also detained and the demand can can facilitate the 10A aspect of it. So this is an argument that we've been making that that uh, even in fail cases where the the um, superintendent of motor vehicles will say, well, we disregard that the police officer violated all these charter rights because we don't care. We've got to fail and we don't have the authority to uh, rule that evidence inadmissible. We're just going to proceed and go ahead and give the police officer all the credibility in the world. And we've been argued, arguing since the Gordon decision came out from the BC Court of Appeal that, well, hang on. Uh, you've got charter violations that are significant here. The charter violation is the delay. Um, and as a consequence, you should not give the police officers evidence the weight that you would give it were there not those charter violations. Exactly. So what do they remove from the manual, Paul? Well, they remove... They remove uh, uh, one paragraph, and the paragraph reads, this is the paragraph that is no longer in the manual, ASD demands must be made immediately, quote-unquote, and without delay. They remove that. The next line is one that we'll discuss in a minute, but that's the important one that is removed from the manual, uh, and we believe, I mean, it makes perfect sense that they're removing it from the manual because we're the ones who are making this argument. Well, it's also interesting timing that they removed it from the manual because I've seen indecisions lately, and this is what reinforces my belief that this is all part of a larger plan to respond to court decisions. I've now seen decisions from the tribunal where they say, oh, no, no, no. Just because there was an eight-minute delay in making your approved screening device demand doesn't matter because it's not the demand that has to be immediate. The criminal code only says that compliance has to be immediate. Which is completely inconsistent with the long-standing history of the case law. And, of course, the case law, the reason behind it is the charter violations. Um, so the government is going to try and do something clever here, and you can see what they're trying to do. And it, it's unfortunate to know that we can see the tribunal setting it up beforehand. The tribunal is the ones making the decision, supposed to be independent. At the same time, we've got the tribunal publishing the manual and taking this out of the manual as they're starting to move this way, clearly, you know, temporally connected with the release of the BC Court of Appeal decision in Gordon. Yes. Now, the next sentence is their escape clause when we point <laughs> this out. Because the next sentence in the manual was wrong. And there's lots in the manual that's wrong. But the next sentence was wrong. The, the next sentence in that paragraph said, the officer must, underlined must, read the ASD demand as soon as practicable. Eh. Yeah, we looked at that and it's been in there for years and it's not as soon as practicable. That is a, a term of art, just like uh, immediately is a term of art. Uh, as soon as practicable is a term of art and it's a broader time period uh, than immediately. And the, so this was wrong. Ontario Court of Appeal in Vanderbruggen, which is the leading case on the interpretation of as soon as practicable, it means reasonably prompt in the circumstances. But the Quebec Court of Appeal in Bro made it very clear that as soon as practicable is not how quickly the demand has to be made, because in Bro, the Quebec Court of Appeal even considers that the legislature, parliament, could have used that term and their choice not to denotes immediacy as the requirement. So plausible deniability here, they can say, well, we removed that uh, paragraph because of the second sentence with as soon as practicable. And um, But of course, really, it looks like they took the opportunity to remove the first sentence, which is the demand must be made immediately and without any, any delay. 
So yeah. we'll see where they go with that one. But now I think we should probably talk for a couple of minutes about the omissions, the things that should have been fixed. As I said at the outset, one of their big concerns was that they not change the manual because they were worried that it would look bad if they changed the manual too much. And we got this in emails and the emails were quite clearly those, you know, those words, we can't change the manual. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so they've left in some of the typos um, and uh, there's a bunch of things that they have still not addressed. Yeah. You've got a list of three specific ones that are pretty troubling. Um, The first one, is people with disabilities who can't blow. And we've talked about this a lot, and this is something that is going to be developing law in the next few years, I can tell you guaranteed, because we see a lot of people, post-COVID in particular, who are have lung issues. There's mm-hmm. lots of people, for whatever medical reasons, they cannot meet the parameters of that particular device. And you hope that the flow meter, the flow sensor is working properly. You hope the police officers operating it all properly. But even then, there are people who physically cannot meet the parameters of the device at that time in the roadside, often in the cold. Like we see it jump up uh, spectacularly when the weather changes. So we see it jumped up spectacularly. The number of refusals, right, uh, have increased significantly when they introduced this approved screening device. It's not like people suddenly started trying to refuse, right? Um, So there's a lot of people with disabilities and there is nothing in the manual at all to deal with circumstances where a person is incapable of blowing. And the police officer really uh, has no tools at their disposal. I mean, we see circumstances where you can read between the lines when the police officer starts talking about the person struggling to blow. But all they can do is issue them a refusal, even if the police officer is looking at it and saying, I don't, I don't know. (laughs) The second one is cigarette smoking, which is very interesting that it's not in the manual because they've even done, the RCMP Forensic Laboratory has even done studies to test this theory that cigarettes may or may not produce a reading and did find evidence that a cigarette can cause a false fail. Sure, and each time, repeatable evidence. Um, And uh, it was an internal study they did. They never published it. There was a discussion about doing further research or publishing, and they said, no, 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 this is the last thing we want the world to know. Um, So in the manual, it says you should wait five minutes from a cigarette because it could damage the device. Uh, I've never seen evidence that it could damage the device. Um, People are not blowing raw smoke onto the device five minutes after, even three minutes after. However, cigarette smoke can be the same as mouth alcohol, and it can elevate the reading even a few minutes afterward. And they discovered that. Um, It had never really been tested, to my knowledge, by the RCMP, but they decided to do some tests using devices that were being pulled from service and what did they discover the risk is not so much to damage the device like it says in the manual that's grossly misleading the risk is artificially elevated readings now the last uh issue is related to cigarette smoking and that's vaping yeah so how how long has vaping been in uh thing like 10 years, <laughs> 10 years, 12 years, something like that. Uh, it's all over the place. Um, all sorts of our clients are vaping. People are vaping. I look at them in their cars, they're vaping. They suck on that little vape and then they wait a while. It's not like a cigarette where you're smoking it all the time. Um, the, uh, once you light it, 
Um, and uh, vaping is a huge concern when it comes to breath testing and not explored anywhere in the manual. It's like it doesn't exist. Yeah, because God forbid they introduce something else that police might have to accommodate for. Or think about. And, you know, we look at it all the time and I can see circumstances where I think the vape uh, should have led to a 15-minute deprivation period. Other times when I think, okay, the person's vaping, there should have been at least five minutes, something by mouth. Uh, And police officers are not considering it because it's not in the manual. Now, that gets me to the last thing, which is the manual. It says right on the front that it is, or it says somewhere right inside, not on the front, it's in the first notice page, that this is produced for training police officers in British Columbia. And Kyla, how many police officers do you know who have read the manual? Um, uh, They all read it once when they did their training course years ago. So we're talking, um, there was a, the first manual was in 2014. Um, it's no longer on the government's website. It's been pulled. The previous four, I think, are still on the government's website. I think the first one was never published there. That was before they started doing that. But in any event, um, let's think about this for a minute or so. Did any police officer read this changed manual? They don't even distribute it. I asked in a cross-examination once about whether when there are changes to the manual, there's a bulletin that goes out or anything, anything to confirm that people know. And there isn't. Yeah, and I've talked to a bunch of police officers in traffic court asking them if they've seen this manual when it came out. Did you see the 2020 manual? Did you see the 2018 manual? And none of them knew that it existed. None of them knew that there was an update. None of them knew that they should ever familiarize themselves with it. Um, And so the um, uh, superintendent of motor vehicles relying on that manual published on their website uh, is really tells you nothing about whether or not the police officer understood they had to comply with that manual. And with that, it's time to turn to a McGracken moment. Ladies and gentlemen, let loose the law and justice, Kraken Eric McGracken! Welcome to another McGracken moment. Now, folks, if you don't know, that voice introducing me is the legendary American-Japanese voice actress, Lenny Hart. Uh, I could never live up to an introduction like that. I was going to ramp up my volume, but I'll always be outshined by Lenny's introduction. Lenny, thank you for doing that. Folks, today I want to talk about when you can sue, or at least one circumstance is when you can actually sue under the no-fault model. So this week, there was a headline, Tesla suddenly accelerates into BC Ferries ramp, breaks in two. And you could look it up. There's good photos of a Tesla smashed all to hell uh, with injuries to the driver and the passenger. And I just wrote a quick article on it, but this is actually one of the few times that the BC government lets a victim of a car crash sue for a crash. Now, I'm not saying the Tesla was manufactured poorly. The article itself doesn't conclude that. It says who the hell knows why this crash happened. But if a vehicle is defectively designed, that's one of the very few carve-outs 
or when victims can still sue for pain and suffering in British Columbia, the BC uh, Vehicle or Insurance Vehicle Act basically sets out five or six circumstances where you could still sue. A defective vehicle is one. If the vehicle is defectively repaired by a mechanic, that's another. You could sue the mechanic. I chuckle to myself, but there's a trend here. Every circumstance is one where you could sue somebody that doesn't involve ICBC insurance. So, so long as ICBC doesn't have to let some of their precious dollars go, then the BC government is okay with letting you sue people for the consequences of a crash, or at least that's the main theme. Uh, but that's today's McGracken moment. Thank you. Eric is so passionate. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in seeing like how far this issue of um, vehicles being improperly repaired could be taken as far as giving people the right to sue. And I think if you're in a motor vehicle accident, you're going to want to try and get the person who was involved in the accident with you to tell you when they last had their vehicle in for service or last had their vehicle repaired because there might be an auto body shop or a dealership that you can sue and you may be able to recover more money that way. There's a duty of care, a breach of the duty, damage resulting, that's in negligence, and that can go to the person who's in the other vehicle. The person who's driving the vehicle or bought the vehicle might have uh, grounds to sue in contract law and yeah. negligence. Both 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 drivers could sue. How cool. Anyway, um, thank you, Eric, for that. So, Paul, it's time to talk about the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, cross-examination the pinpoint method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. There were so many options to choose from for you the ridiculous so driver of the week, and so I'm looking forward to seeing what you culled from the from the group. Well, I really liked this one because it answers or it asks more questions than it answers. And this is uh, in Play Playstow, New Hampshire, uh, where a man was involved in a motor vehicle collision. Uh, he fled the scene of the collision, buck naked. And when police found him uh, hiding behind a home, he was covered in blood. But what's not clear to me, Paul, why was he naked? Did he take his clothes off before the accident or after the accident? And where did the blood come from? Because it, Is it his own blood? Nobody reported a bloody naked man running down the street away from the accident. Most of the time when you are in an accident, you're not necessarily going to be covered in blood. Yeah. Very, very unusual uh, situation. Anytime somebody's naked in relation to their car, I always think that they yeah. could be a ridiculous driver of the yeah. week. Yeah, naked in the car, covering them in blood adds a level to it. Unsurprisingly, he was charged with DWI, but also, and I got a kick out of this, indecent exposure. Well, why not? You're running around <laughs> naked. I mean, you can charge him with that. I don't agree that that should be a charge necessarily under those circumstances, but hey, that, that's the law, then you're stuck with it. Um, yeah. If you want to be one of the ridiculous drivers of the week, I suppose you could drive around naked and your time might come. Yes, but we don't <laughs> recommend it because of the potential for the indecent exposure charge. We don't? 
Okay. No. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, don't try and get yourself featured as a ridiculous driver of the week. It's just generally sound advice. Okay. I will take that advice. Thank you, Kyla. Well, that's our podcast. If you need to reach us related to a driving law issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889. And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.